Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's take our Bibles in hand and turn again to uh, Luke chapter 1. It's a very long chapter, there's 80 verses in the very first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. But it's uh, a wonderful account of the coming of the Messiah. We come this morning to a section of scripture known as the Song of Zacharias. It's a canticle of praise that comes forth from the lips of the father of John the Baptist on the day of John's circumcision when he was only eight days old. You remember that because Zacharias doubted the angel Gabriel's announcement that uh, his wife Elizabeth was going to conceive in her old age, having been barren all of her life, uh, that he, Zacharias, was struck with an inability to speak until such time as he obeyed the angel, the command of the Lord really by naming the child John. And so he has just confirmed in written form, his name is John. And immediately the scripture says his tongue was loosed and he begins to spontaneously praise the Lord. But also he's answering a question that was asked of the friends and family that had gathered there. Remember they had asked, what will this child turn out to be? because the hand of the Lord is surely upon him. And so Zacharias, inspired by the Holy Spirit, declares who John is going to be, even as he declares the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So let's read Luke chapter one, beginning verse 67. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he has spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of the public appearance to Israel. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, several times in the course of this uh, series already, and I'm going to do it more in the future, I'm going to remind you that God is sovereign and that this story is his story. God, in his sovereignty, has chosen to reveal himself to mere humans like us through the pages of Scripture. And so the question becomes, What has he revealed about himself? Well, at least three things. Number one, he's revealed his nature. He tells us that he is holy. He is without sin and he is unlike us in that regard. He reveals to us his attributes such as his omnipresence, the fact that he's everywhere at once, his uh, omniscience, that he knows everything at once, his immutability, that he never changes. 
But most importantly, God has revealed to us his eternal plan of redemption. That is, all of history is not a, a mix and mingling of disjointed facts and figures and circumstances. The Bible reveals that God is sovereign over every aspect of our life and that he started human history and he's going to end human history and he's sovereign over everything in between. Now, how did he accomplish that? Through his chosen people, the nation of Israel. You remember that Jesus told the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, as they were discussing theology and deep religious matters, that salvation is of the Jews. What he meant by that is that God in his sovereignty has chosen to use one group of people, the Jews, the nation of Israel, to bless the rest of the world. He unfolded that plan through a series of covenants. Now the first covenant that we find in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3. We call it the Adamic covenant because it was made between God and Adam. Remember that God had instructed Adam and Eve that they could uh, enjoy all of the bounty of the Garden of Eden. The one prohibition was they were not to eat from this tree that was set in the midst of the garden. Of course, you know, they were tempted of Satan. They sinned. God had told them if they ate of this tree, they would surely die. So God came and visited them and he pronounced the truth of that curse. And he said, you will surely die. And they didn't die immediately, but uh, they're not here today. And so sin's curse passed not only to Adam and Eve, but to every subsequent generation. But in the midst of that curse, there's also this covenant of hope. In chapter 3, verse 15, we find the proto-evangelist. That is the first time the Messiah is mentioned. God speaking to Satan said, you have bruised his heel, but he will crush your head. That is, there's coming a seed of woman who we know today as the Messiah, who would live a perfect life and defeat forever death, hell, and the grave. And that, of course, alluding to Jesus. Now, later on, another covenant between God and Noah. We call that the Noahic covenant. You remember when God had destroyed all of human life and vegetation and animal life, save for Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their families. He made a promise. And he ratified that promise with a sign in the sky, a rainbow, that never again would he destroy the earth in such manner. Then we have the Abrahamic covenant in which God chose to bring about salvation through the seed of one nation. It began with the promise to a man named Abram who was living in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. Then we have the Mosaic covenant or, or, or the Sinai covenant where God took Moses up on a mountain and gave him the law and instructed him how he was to be worshiped. And then he had a covenant between himself and King David, the Davidic covenant, which said that there would always forever be one of David's descendants on the throne of Israel. Now, Zacharias was a priest of the Lord, but he only ministered in the temple doing sacrifices two times a year. Most of the year he would be back in that little Judean village where he lived, teaching the people the word of God and studying the word of God himself. And so he no doubt was extremely familiar with all of these covenants and promises that I've just rehearsed to you. And like all of the Israelites, he was awaiting their fulfillment. Now, as he holds his own son, John, eight days old, the Holy Spirit reveals to him that John will have a part in the fulfillment of these exceeding great and precious promises. That is, John would be the prophet 
he would be the forerunner who would go and tell the people to get ready for the coming Messiah. So really his song here, Zacharias' song, is a celebration song. It seems to be something in the human spirit that gravitates towards singing in times of victory. You recall that when King David defeated his enemies, the Philistines, the, the women composed songs and sang them that evening. And they said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. We sing in times of victory. Those of you can remember your college days, if your football team won a big game, you would stay after the game in the stands and sing the alma mater together or the fight song. We sing in time of celebration. Here in the Gospel of Luke, we have three such praise songs. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first one, the, the Magnificat of Mary, where she magnified, she exalted the Lord for what he was doing in and through her. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the song of Simeon. Simeon was an elderly man who lived in and around the temple and he would come there to pray every day. And the Lord had promised him through the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he saw the Messiah with his own eyes. And in his old age, Mary and Joseph come with the eight-day-old Jesus to have circumcision performed. And when he saw him, he knew immediately it was the Messiah. And he lifted him up in his arms and he breaks forth in song. But today, we're looking at the second of these three songs, the song of Zacharias. It's called sometimes the Benedictus because of the very first line in verse 68. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now there's a number of these kinds of benedictions or blessings in both the Old and the New Testament. But they all begin the same way. Blessed be the God of Israel. I think there's something of note here as he held his newborn miraculous baby in his arms that he resisted the urge to praise the baby. You can probably remember dads when you held your, your firstborn in your arms. That is a, that is a particular uh, temptation especially if they look like you and uh, you notice that and, and you see how perfect the Lord has formed them. You want to say, this is the most beautiful baby in all the world. Zacharias resisted that. And so he does not praise the baby. He praises the God who created the baby. The apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter one, that uh, really the great sin of humanity is that we worship the created rather than the creator. Zacharias didn't do that. He got it right. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. It would be the same as if we went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And here we find some of the great works of the great masters of sculpture and painting. And let's say we came to one of the great masterpieces of oil painting. And uh, we said, oh, painting, how beautiful you are. What vivid brushstrokes you have. What incredible color scheme you have. What, what a beautiful frame you have. We don't praise the picture, do we? We praise the artist. And so here is Zacharias praising the artist, the one who has created his son, John. Note he calls him Jehovah, the God of Israel. Now God, of course, created all things in all men and women and all peoples. But he has a very special relationship with his covenant people, Israel. Zacharias is speaking of that special covenant relationship when he calls him particularly the God of Israel. And you know that a covenant is a contract of promises. God says he's going to do certain things. And Zacharias is simply celebrating the fulfillment of God's promises. 
And so he says, for example, look in verse 73. He says, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. He's calling upon his wealth of knowledge of the Old Testament and he's referencing the Abrahamic covenant. By the way, let me just read you the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now unfortunately the vast majority of Jewish people had only heard part of that covenant. They really enjoyed the parts that talk about the God, about the God of heaven blessing those who bless them and cursing those who cursed them, but they were to be a blessing to other nations. That is, Israel was no better or worse than any other nation morally. It's that God in His sovereignty had chosen them to be the conduit, the vessel, the vehicle, if you will, to which all the nations of the world were to be blessed. And Zacharias is just by the Spirit's prompting beginning to understand that, and so he's breaking forth in song. Now you remember what we said about the covenant promises of God last Sunday, right? They are only in two categories because all the promises of God are true and trustworthy. A promise of God has to be in one of two categories. The first category is it has been fulfilled already. And many of the promises of God in the Old Testament were fulfilled. But the other category is they await to be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled in the future. And so here's Zacharias speaking for all of the Hebrew people, the Jewish nation. They have been waiting and waiting and waiting for these Abrahamic promises to be fulfilled. And now the time has come and he breaks out in song. He's rejoicing that he's lived to see the fulfillment of God's promise, the promise to bless all the nations through Israel. Now really this comes down to worldview. And a good portion of what uh, the pastors of this church are, are trying to do in our teaching and in our counseling with you is to help you develop and to keep a Christian worldview. And that includes how you view human history. See, the Bible teaches a linear view of history, meaning that all of human history had a definite beginning point and will have a definite ending point, and everything that happens in between are points along that continuum. Now, that's in sharp contrast to what over half the world is taught and what they believe, and that is the world is cyclical, and that their worldview is cyclical, and their religion and philosophy is cyclical. You know, a, a, a circle, which represents a cycle, has no real beginning or ending, right? You just continue to do the same things over and again. Buddhism, Hinduism, they're all based on that cyclical view of life, but not so the Jewish faith, not, not so biblical Christianity. We believe that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, right? And that in the end, Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. And we're living somewhere in between those two things. But there are points along that line that God punctuates with promises and covenants to his people. And so here's Zacharias, and he's recognizing he's sitting right on top of one of those points on the line. And so he blesses the Lord. Here's what he says. 
He says, God is redeeming. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. You know the word redeem means to, to buy back, to purchase, to set free. When we talk about salvation, one of the terms that we use is redemption. The idea is that we as sinners are on an auction block. We are captive to our own sin. We can't help but to sin. We are bound to it and chained to it. But Jesus sets us free as we respond to him in faith. And we are set free not to sin, but to serve. And so Zechariah says he has visited us. He has come down to us, as it were, and he's redeeming his people. So, so that is the Abrahamic covenant. But he also refers here to David. Look at verse 69. He says, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Now, that's a phrase you might want to mark in your Bible, a horn of salvation. I really struggled with that this week. I called some of my uh, better educated pastor peers and asked them their opinion on, on the, the meaning of, of this phrase. Because at first blush, it could mean a lot of different things, right? Because in the Bible, we see a horn being a musical instrument announcing some great event. For example, Paul told the church at Thessalonica that when Christ returns, his return is going to be preceded by a horn blowing, right? One day the trumpet of God will sound and the dead in Christ will rise. Well, he's not referring here to a musical instrument. He's referring here to an actual horn as if an animal would have a horn. First Chronicles 17 11 through 14 says this, speaking to David, God says, when your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. Now, on one hand, we look at the Davidic covenant, and, and we say, well, God simply said that after David died, one of his sons was going to follow him on the throne, and he's going to build me a house. Did that happen? Sure. And that king was Solomon, right? Remember, David wanted to build a house to the Lord. David lived in a palace, and he noticed that uh, God didn't have a house, so he wanted to build a temple. But God didn't, told him, didn't tell him to build a temple. In fact, he told him just the opposite. You're not going to be allowed to build the temple, but I'm going to allow your son Solomon to build the temple. And so in one sense, like most prophecy in the Old Testament, there's an immediate fulfillment, but then there's a fulfillment yet to come. We know that because of something that he says in verse 12. He says, he shall build me a house and I will establish his throne, how long? Forever. Now, wait a second. We know that Solomon didn't live forever. In fact, we know that when he died, his wicked son, Rehoboam, took over the throne and didn't last long because he was such a terrible king that it divided the kingdom into the northern and the south and neither one of those kingdoms survived. And so there's not a monarchy today called the kingdom of Israel. So does that mean that God's promises failed? No. It means that God must have had something different in mind than Solomon living forever and of course he did. What he had in mind is that the eternal king of kings and lord of lords the only one who's truly eternal would reign over Israel. And he spoke, of course, of the coming of the Savior. And he says that he has come by saying he's raised up a horn of salvation. Now, this phrase, horn of salvation, is used a number of times by David. 
in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 18:2, he says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. Maybe you're still not getting the pictures. Psalm 92:10. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. So, if you didn't grow up on a ranch or a farm, it's kind of hard to for you to, to understand what he's talking about. But if you did grow up on a ranch or a farm and it had a big old mean bull out in the back forty, that you know you were not to go near, because he had a horn, and he knew how to use it. The horn is a symbol of the point of God's power and authority. Just as in a wild ox's horn is the point of his power and authority. And so he's saying Jesus is a horn of salvation of his power and authority that he's raised up. And he says he has revealed this by speaking through the mouths of the holy prophets from of old. Now what did the holy prophets of old have to say about the coming Messiah? Well, Jeremiah 23.5, Jeremiah was a prophet, was he not? One of the great ones. Here's what Jeremiah said. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Isaiah was one of the prophets, and he wrote in Isaiah 9-7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Well, those are two prophets. There's one more. Samuel, 2 Samuel 7:10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Now here's Zacharias and he's speaking for all the Jewish people. And they've been oppressed, and they've been put down, and they've been ridiculed and maligned. That They spent many years down in captivity in Egypt, didn't they? And then they spent time in Babylonian captivity. And it, it looked to all from the outside looking in that this little nation would be wiped off the face of the earth forever. But that's never been accomplished, right? Do you know why? Because God decreed it so. God said there would be a nation called Israel and he would in the future create a kingdom in which they would be disturbed no more. Well, dear friends, remember I said some promises have been fulfilled and some haven't. This is one that's yet to be fulfilled, right? There's coming a day, and I believe this speaks of the millennial kingdom, when Jesus comes not as a suffering servant riding the foal of a donkey, but when he comes with his legions riding a white war horse with a sash across his breast that declares his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When he comes to judge the living and the dead. But unfortunately, many of the people of Jesus' day had an over-realized eschatology. <laughs> they thought that when he came the first time, they thought he would come to judge and carry out war. And remember even some of his own disciples, is it now, Lord, is it now? James and John wanted to sit one on his right, one on his left, his two generals as he governed there in Jerusalem. But Jesus did not come the first time to judge. 
Jesus came to seek and save the lost, he said. What a glorious good news that is for us because I would guess that the vast majority of us in this room are not Jewish. We are Gentiles. Paul says we are outside of the covenants and the promises. But thanks be to God, we have been included in this covenant because of the last covenant, which is the new covenant, right? Now you hear what uh, Jeremiah goes on to say. Behold, Jeremiah says, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. He's speaking here of the Mosaic covenant. Do you remember? God took them out in the wilderness and he took Moses up on Mount Sinai and he gave him the Ten Commandments, told the people to obey him. And Moses brought down the law. You know what the people said? We'll do it. They made sacrifice. They said, yes, we're going to do it. We're going to be God's people and we're going to be faithful and we're going to obey. Did they? No. Not any more than any of us do. Right? We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And see, the old covenant was deficient not in that God made it weak or God was weak. It is deficient in the sense that we didn't have the ability to keep it. And so what God does is he creates a new covenant. And this is what he says about the new covenant. This is a covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them on their heart. I will write it, not on tablets, but on their heart. And I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is a unilateral covenant. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son into the world. And he's going to die for sinners. Yes, I know they deserve death, just as I told Adam and Eve, if they sinned, they would surely die. And every generation has had sin's curse passed upon them. But according to John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the new covenant. That if we'll put our faith and trust in Christ, he will forgive our sins. He, he will do radical heart surgery, Ezekiel says. And he'll replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And he will come to live within us by his spirit. And when we die, we'll go to heaven and live with him forever. That's the new covenant. Christ indeed is the indescribable gift that God has given to his people. This is the time of year of gift giving. And if you're like me, you are fishing for hints and helps from your loved ones to know what would be a gift that they would appreciate and love. You know, a gift is only appreciated if it meets a great need. For example, if I were on Christmas morning to give my wife her present and she opened it up and it was a full set of jersey and practice pads and a Dallas Cowboy football helmet. I might think that's pretty cool, but I don't expect she'd appreciate it because she has no need of it. If you ever wonder why this world is confused about Christ and Christmas, it's because they don't understand their need of a savior. And for those of us that understand as Paul did, that he was the chief of sinners. The story of Christmas brings nothing but joy to our heart. It's the reason we're here and it's the reason that we sing. Well, let's, let's bring it a little closer to home.
let's say in a couple of hours you're sitting in your living room watching the Dallas Cowboys beat up on the New York Giants. And one of Keller's finest firefighters breaks the front door of your house down with an ax, rushes in, swoops you up, and carries you out on his shoulders to a waiting ambulance. That would only be appreciated if you knew the house was on fire, right? If you knew you were in imminent danger, if he just did that out of the blue, it would not be appreciated. And so when we talk about the Savior and we talk about Jesus, people are confused because they don't understand that the house is on fire. And even worse, they abide under the righteous wrath of God. And in that nine months, I'm convinced that Zacharias was in his solitude and silence. He reflected upon his own sinfulness. He reflected on the sinfulness of his people and his need of a Savior. And so when he had the opportunity, he said this. He says, you child holding John the Baptist will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. That's what John did. He told the people how they could be saved. He gave them the knowledge of salvation, and it was the same then as it is today, through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight and you don't have assurance of salvation, I'm sad for you, but I'm rejoicing tonight because you have an opportunity now to give your heart and life to Christ. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I and these people, like John the Baptist, have the opportunity to point you to Jesus. To point you to verse 78 that speaks of the tender mercies of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Here's Jesus pictured as the sunrise on high, taken from Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. And the next verse, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. That, of course, a reference to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, which says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. Now, who are those people who sit in the darkness? Well, it's every person ever born. The scripture says that... Uh, Romans 3.23, we're all sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. And the Gospel of John says a light has come into the world. That's none other than the Lord Jesus. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They didn't appreciate the gift of the Son. What about you, dear one? The Scripture says, how shall we stand if we neglect so great a salvation? The Lord has offered to you tonight a great and indescribable gift, and that is the salvation of your soul and the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, and we are grateful, Father, that we get to exalt you tonight and rejoice in our redemption, the fact that we've been set free from the penalty and the power of sin by the atoning work of Christ on the cross Lord, we rejoice in your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness. And Lord, we have the great privilege, as John the Baptist did, of pointing people to the Savior and telling them and giving them the knowledge of salvation that whoever would call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Lord, I pray if there's even one in the sound of my voice tonight who came into this service tonight without a knowledge of Jesus, that they would not go home in that condition that they would call upon you right here and now in the quietness of this moment. Confess that they are a sinner, that they've fallen short of your glory. 
Confess, Father, that they have nothing to offer you that you're in need of, that they would come to you on your terms, and that is hopeless and helpless and empty-handed. And call out as the tax collector, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Lord, I thank you for many in this room who over the years have seen their need of a Savior by your Spirit, and you've given us the faith to believe. Lord, I pray you would call many others to salvation this Christmas season, and we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.